I am passionate about teaching this material because I think that we have to understand history to understand what's happening today. Pork tenderloins, only $3.29. And how did that become the way I experience church now? Hey, listen, you know, you've got the creation, we've got um, Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got all these things that have happened. We're now part of that story. Because to me, the <laughs> This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Ranks Jr., along with producer Wes. We're glad you're here. Hey, did y'all, y'all didn't get that on there, did you? I mean, we were, we were supposed to be recording. This is Frank Range Jr. You found episode 57 of History Through the Eyes of Faith. It was right after 56 and before 58. That's right. You're right here. Episode 57, History Through the Eyes of Faith. Along with producer Wes, sometimes known as Wes the Sketch, because he can be sketchy on occasion. <laughs> and as always... You know, I, you wouldn't be hearing me introducing the podcast if we didn't have Angie Ferris. Angie, say hello to everybody. Hello to everybody. Nice. All right. Well, um, we're glad you're here, and and we are uh, into fifty seven. It's so funny that I said we're into fifty seven, and we were in fifty seven seconds in. Oh, that's weird. To well, it might not be when we finally edit this, because I know we had a little stuff at the beginning that may you may not have heard, but what I saw was 57. Um, so, how you been, Ange? It's been a long time since the last episode. It's been <laughs> at least a week. It's been at least a week. I've been pretty good. Pretty good. Interesting thing. All right. What happened? I sent you this. When you, we haven't talked about it. Um, we're having another grandchild this summer. <laughs> yeah, that's not the new news. No. Okay. The new news is... We talked about that on, on one of the episodes before. Right. right? Yeah, the yeah. new news is that they had one of those 4D ultrasounds this week, and I got a picture of her face. You know, I remember you sending me. You said, today I saw my new granddaughter, and you sent me the picture, and I looked at it, and I was like, I can't tell what that is. And no, it's kind you of, did not. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't tell, tell what it was. I mean, I could tell it was a baby, but I couldn't say... Where, I, I'd have to look at it again. You point it out, but I, it just kind of freaked me out a little bit. Yeah, because my response I got from him was, "Wow." Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was a good picture for a four D picture. It was a good picture for forty. Four D. One of those. Oh, four D. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. They didn't. They weren't able to get pictures like that back when I was having babies. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Speaking of back when you were having babies, we're around five hundred A.D. now, right? <laughs> oh, that's not funny. <laughs> That's not funny. Um, no, we were just talking about your 50 wedding, 50th wedding anniversary is coming up pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Y'all, come on. <laughs> we were talking about a little show that I'm going to be doing uh, coming up in um, about three weeks. A little over three weeks. Yeah. And uh, we'll maybe talk about it some other I might have already talked about it on here. A little bit. We mentioned it, but we didn't talk about what it was or anything. Yeah. Well, let's not. Okay. Let's keep that on the DL. Okay. But I am doing Well, it already happened by the time this is out, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. I am doing another TV episode this Saturday. 
Yeah. So we were talking before we go back to the TV episode. Yeah. I'm not having a 50th wedding anniversary. No, not anytime soon. I hope you do have one. I, that's true. I do hope so too. Yeah. I don't want to say that. I'm not having one anytime soon. A, in a very short period of time, I'm having a 38th wedding anniversary, which we were discussing is only 12 years away from. Mm. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, um, we're excited. 30. Yeah. It's good. I heard uh, Vince Gill. Uh, it was emceeing something. Might have been the Opry. Um, but whatever it was, he's talking to people out of the crowd and somebody said they're celebrating their uh, 50th wedding anniversary. And he said, I've been married 40 years. And, you know, of course, the crowd knows that's not true. Well, he probably has all together, right? But he said, not in a row. <laughs> and I thought, that's a pretty, I'm, that's, that, I like that. Yeah, not, not in a row. Not in a row. Although he's, they've been married a while. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what it was, but it was it was a funny. It was like you know at the Opry. If anybody listening is fans yeah, of the Grand yeah. Ole Opry, there was a, a an actor's actor, a comedian, singer, little Jimmy Dickens that was a staple at the Opry. Right. And he has since right. passed away, but he would be the one making all those jokes to the crowd, and it was almost like Vince was stepping in and doing all that stuff oh, and that was cool. great but uh vince gill's gonna be having a little residency of some shows at the ryman coming up in august oh that's cool like several shows in a row and they're not cheap yeah you said you're doing another tv recording yeah and when is that uh, it's on saturday oh cool it's uh it's a tv show that you can go right now to pbs.org if that's their website i bet it is you can follow them on instagram because i do the show reconnecting roots mm-hmm. The show's called Reconnecting Roots. It's on PBS, and it's a really great show. It has It's kind of similar to what we do mm-hmm. here on the podcast. And who are you going to play this time? Do you know? I'm playing FDR. Oh. Which I look nothing like FDR, <laughs> but I think that's the point. They do these little comedy bits to reenact scenes from history, and I have played Samuel Adams, Teddy Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover, and now FDR. And I don't think their audience may pay attention. I mean, it's a broad audience, and uh, hopefully people enjoy the show. I think it's a really good show because they also incorporate music, and so they've got original uh, songs and, and artists, and it's a, I think the show's very well done. Um, but sometimes they do little comedy bits to reenact things, and this, is, this episode is about the U.S. dollar. And so we're in a bank, and, and FDR had something to do with something that happened in the past with the dollar. And so, yeah, he did. <laughs> and so, uh, I'm going to have a little moment, but I get to be with my buddy, Josh. He's going to be in it as well. He directed the last one. And so you've met Josh before, right? He's, he's going to be a bank robber, I think. <laughs> bank robber. And, uh, have you watched those YouTube videos mm-mm. where the guys you probably have and Wes might know what they're called. It's. Adult men who have videoed their children and then they they voice over over what they're, yeah, that's it. And, and Tim does one all the time. So you can't say anything about any bank robber. He goes, bank wubba, want to buy a penguin? (laughs) That's the punchline of that thing. This is something I'll add here. And people listening Think of people that you know that do this thing and then have fun with it. 
Okay. So she just commented on something that Tim does that if you say anything about a bank robber, he's going to immediately, what you, what you mean? He's going to call that up and say that, <laughs> right? Gonna, he can't help not do it. Right. Right. So I like finding that about people and then secretly getting them to do it on purpose. <laughs> oh yeah. I can't wait. So like I'll say bank robber when I'm around him just to see if he does it. <laughs> He and, will. and people you are bank wubba want to buy a penguin and now you have the disease too i see because we you can't not do that i can't not do it well in college but he does a lot better in college uh, we had a friend that he was convinced he sounded just like a, a pepsi commercial with mc hammer and MC Hammer was singing the song Feelings, and somebody gave him a Pepsi or something, and then he went back to doing his Can't Touch This or whatever. Uh-huh. So the commercial was like, hey, Hammer, and you give him a Pepsi. But in the commercial, he would always go, feelings, nothing more. That was part of the commercial. Right. So we knew that if we said... Biggest song ever. If we knew we even said MC Hammer in any way, if we just went... Hey, him like that underneath our breath. Uh-huh. And this guy happened to hear that sub- subconsciously. Uh-huh. The next minute would involve him going feelings. <laughs> we could plant that seed. And it would be like a knowing, like we'd look at somebody and go, hey, hammer. And we would get him. It was like Pavlov's dog or something. So, but I'm sure people listening, you've got somebody that, you know, they will do something if they're hear that. And now I know that it's bank robber for Tim. <laughs> All right. That's the other thing that I love. That if I ever do stand up, that uh, people have a laugh and they always end with the. <laughs> no, they all have their own thing. Have, have the, you? Did, have you just very satisfied with, your, with the laugh. <laughs> notice this with your kids, like with with our kids and now our granddaughter. They have a specific. Like you can be in another room and you hear them laughing in a certain way and you know what's happening. Mm, I don't know. What do you mean what's happening? Well, like our son has a laugh that has to do with the pets. Oh, okay. I'm not aware of this. You know, so it's just like you can hear that and you know that he's laughing at. Uh, uh, an animal. That's something that an animal has done. <laughs> you know, I've never like, heard that before. It's like he just has this laugh and like, you know, that's what it is. And so, yeah. So now we've noticed his daughter has a laugh for things too. Like you can tell that's what she's laughing at. Mm. That is odd. Yeah. I've not well, heard it's that like, before. It, I think it's like different tones of voice for different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, listener, please comment. Go into Kofi. Tell us about laughs. Tell us about things that you've heard people do that are random triggers to those things. Join our in the beginning uh, level to participate in a live, well, not really live chat, but back and forth chat going on in our yeah. chat room. And let me just say right now, if you're listening to us on Spotify and you're not driving a car, pause right now and rate us on Spotify because we Spotify oh, okay. has now made it where you can give us stars okay and but they won't publish how many stars we're rated with until enough people have rated us oh really how many people have to rate us i don't know it just says when i rate it on my phone it'll say thank you for being one of the first to rate this podcast when we have enough blah 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 we will publish blah 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 blah. i don't know it might be might have to have more ratings than we have listeners but if you're listening to us on spotify please give us a rating 
I, I'm into I'm into it. I I'm got graduation stuffs coming up for one of my sons, and something's happening, and I'm. But I'm gonna put that away, and we're gonna move on. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, Angie, fifty sixth, fifty six. Why do I say that? I, you know what it is. We recently had. Uh, may the fourth be with you. Mm-hmm. And then, then you had a discussion about the fifth and the, the fifth sixth. and the sixth. And so, when I say fifty sixth, it reminded me of is it Revenge of the Fifth or Revenge of the Sixth? You know, because Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I heard you and Tim talking about <clears throat> it. We don't know which one it is. I think it should be sixth. Tim thinks it's sixth too. Just because you want to give Cinco de Mayo, yeah, a day, yeah. Plus, you're recovering from Cinco de Mayo. So your revenge of the sixth. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's getting revenge. How are you on doing you. today? I've got revenge, revenge of, of the, the sixth. sixth. <laughs> yeah. May the fourth be with you. Cinco de Mayo. Oh, revenge, revenge of, of the, the sixth. <laughs> good. Yeah. Good. All right, guys. Good listening. That was episode fifty-seven. <laughs> so, what were you going to say about fifty-six that started you down that hole? I was thing? going back to fifty-sixth and Justinian the Great, the of the Christian. I didn't practice it. I was going to have all that ready for you. Well, you can have it ready. Keeper of the faith. And let me say, when you were discussing that the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church off mic, Uh we were talking about... Wait, don't tell that part. What? That just was a funny bit. Okay, Off mic. You were talking... I wanted to reiterate that he was not like the first to do this. Essentially, he was just cementing what Constantine had done. He just codified it, made it a deal, and it was really never questioned afterwards that the two are one. What did I just do? She looked at her laptop when she said that. I hit a button that took me somewhere I didn't want to go, but now I'm back. All right. So where are we going from what? Justinian, the great cemented okay. of Constantine. So if you think back, we, we talked about the, we did the summary of the barbarians, I guess that was in 55, and, talked, and then talked about how Rome continued, right? That the fall of the Roman Empire was kind of somewhat of a myth because the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and then Justinian was in that Eastern Empire. Mm-hmm. So we did all that. And now we're going to shift back. Well, we want to shift back toward the West and talk about what happens over there. Yeah. And in order to set us up from that, for that, a piece, a lot, all of this stuff we've been doing lately is just building blocks for being able to put the whole picture together a little bit further down the road. And so one of the things we mentioned back when we talked about Patrick was monasticism. So now we're going to go back and talk about how that originated and begin to discuss the importance of it and the role that it plays in that kind so, of thing. Monasticism. Monasticism. Explain what that is, because we brought it up. But there's another word. There's another word that you mentioned a few episodes ago, four or five. I'm gonna try to say the word, and you tell me where it where it fits. Okay. Manichaeism. Is that a word? Yeah. What is that? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You, do you remember it coming up? Uh huh. It's a it's a it's a belief system that was that, a, that somebody some got of, wrapped oh, up. Oh, that in. was Augustine. That's what Augustine was into before he became a Christian. Okay, and I think that mannequins 
come from that word. <laughs> okay. You're so funny with your word origins and where things come from, what they have to do with. But all the time that you were talking about manichaeism and beliefs, and then he turned from that, and I'm like, something crazy going on with mannequins? <laughs> <laughs> You're awful. Like we should have, you know how people have like a vision board, a dream board. They put stuff up. We should have these pictures of the ideas that Frank connects. You know, like this and this. Well, and they're this and all this. over the place. Yeah, no, that's so true. It'd be like so. One of those what do you stoppers. think monasticism is? What am I talking about? I have about? no idea. What is that? You don't know what that word even sounds like. <laughs> is there another word you think that sounds anything similar to monastic? Is it something that has to do with, you go to the doctor? A monastery? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I gotcha. What's yeah. a monastery? It monks. Right. Oh, we did talk about the monks. Because Patrick, remember, the reason it came up was mm -hmm. Patrick's, was his if legacy saw, was carried out at monasteries. If I saw monasticism on a page, I you, could probably figure out what it meant. Okay, so in we're context talking about of the monks, yeah. right? All right, monks. Okay. That's going on in the West. It's kind of going on. We're going to go back further because remember, I told you it'd been around for a while, but we, we just hadn't, hadn't really talked about it. Yeah. So now it's the time to enter into it. Okay. And I'm using a, several, lots of different sources, lots of the same sources I've been using, but there's lots, there's some contribution to this material from almost all of them. Okay. But in addition to ones I've mentioned before, another book, another one of my McKay finds, but it's a classic apparently, is called Religion and the Rise of Western Culture, which is by Christopher Dawson. Okay. And mm -hmm. so that's just another source. When was it published, you know? A long time ago, either early 20th or late 19th century. I can't remember. I think it's early 20th. So like 1900s, early 1900s. Eh, might, might have been. I might be speaking out of school. Might have been like, anyway, I don't know. Sometime, I would think sometime in the 20th century. Huh. But it's, I can dig it out. Well, but, I mean, but, Western civilization is, anyway. Very old. But yeah. it's a classic resource. Okay, a lot of people re refer back to it. So, monasticism was born in the African desert as a protest against the whole tradition of classical culture of the Greek and the Roman world. So if you go all the way back to the early church, so now we're probably talking. So somewhere. you're talking about the church. Like this wasn't monasticism, wasn't just religion. Was this is pre-Christ or is it? No, just... it's Christ. Like we're probably talking about second, third century. Okay. Okay. Classical culture of the Greek and Roman world. Devout followers of Jesus would renounce everything in the ancient world had prized pleasure, wealth, honor, everything except family life and citizenship. And then would, would like escape to the desert. That's why it says it was born in the African desert. Well, Go to the desert to pray and worship. So removing yourself from society to draw closer to God. Yeah, what I think of when, when you mentioned Greek civilization, you mentioned that, right? It was like Greeks and the Roman world, the culture of the Greek and the Roman world, the culture of the Greek and the, like a response to the culture of the Greek and Roman world, early Christians response. I just remember back in the podcast when you had the Christian faith growing and then the Roman and Greek had to do with the Greek gods and there were gods of everything. And 
and Christians only had one God. And then there was kind of this controversy about like you had to choose to be Christian. Yes. And and then there were all these guys. I could see a devout Christian is like, I'm renouncing or I'm removing myself from the influence of all this other Greek. Yeah. So let's leave it. So that, but it wasn't that pronounced until the edict of Milan. Because at the Edict of Milan, or shortly thereafter, when martyrdom no longer was demanded, when Christians were not being persecuted and martyred, those aesthetics, that's the name of these, before they were called monks, or aesthetic is someone who seeks out purity of whatever they're following. Had they had come, those people had come in the eyes of the Christian world to hold the position the martyrs had formerly formerly occupied as the living witnesses of the faith and the reality of the supernatural world. So remember, I told you back when I was listening to Eusebius's The Church History. I don't know if I told you this or not. I think I did. The description of the martyrs and of their death and of their joining Christ and the things that they suffered through. And so. That was revered throughout Christianity. Like that is committed faith. Well, when no one, when people were no longer being persecuted, a commitment to the faith was shown by removing yourself from society and committing yourself to the. To I follow the, that logic. The actions of a monk. Okay. I follow that logic. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. The rise of monasticism was. After Christ's commissioning to his disciples, besides that, the most important and in many ways the most beneficial institutional event in the history of Christianity. Really? That's what Mark Knoll says in Turning Points. That the rise of monasticism Monasticism was after Christ's commission to his disciples, putting that aside, the most important and in many ways the most beneficial institutional event in the history of Christianity. So we're going to move. We're going to talk about why that is. Okay. Hmm. The fame and influence of the new movement reached its height at the very moment when Rome, the earthly city, was falling a victim to the barbarians. It was in that generation that leaders of Roman society made their pilgrimage, pilgrimages to the Egyptian and Syrian deserts. The world has fallen apart. So this apart. is around 500. And before, because we know Patrick was before then, and he came up. There were monks before. The early monks go way back to the very beginnings of the church. But when the influence of the movement reached its height was when Rome, the earthly city, was falling apart. So people are removing themselves to the desert and, and falling. For over a millennium, in the centuries between the reign of Constantine and the Protestant Reformation... That's a thousand years. Almost everything in the church that approached the highest, noblest, and truest ideals of the gospel was done either by those who had chosen the monastic way or by those who had been inspired in their Christian life by the monks. Wow. Yes, almost everything in the church that approached the highest, noblest. So, conditions in the 4th and 5th centuries provided powerful motivations for the spread of monasticism. Well, what what I hear you saying is when we talked about in in, in fifty six, beginning of fifty six, there was a moving into the a dark age. Yeah, there was think, just chaos from the attack of all the different yeah, I think that was fifty five groups yeah. or sects that have come into 
the Western civilization and everybody's scattered. And so I guess monasticism grew out of that. Well, it, it reached its height and the conditions provided powerful motivations to do that, to retreat to the church, right? Yeah. So the persecutions that had taken under Decius in the mid-3rd century and then under Diocletian in the early 4th century, so all this is before Constantine, they took place at the same time that economic difficulties disoriented traditional patterns of life throughout many parts of the Roman Empire, especially in Egypt. So those persecutions were were taking place at the same time that economic difficulties were disorienting things, which were, that was the beginning of like the vandals coming into Egypt. Remember how they went down into Egypt and hung out for a while before they came over and reattacked Rome. So much more important for the spread of monasticism, however, than the persecutions was the, and the disruption of society was the reaction to the church's great successes. So what caused monasticism spread, monasticism to spread, was the reaction to the church's great successes. With the rise of the Constantinian church state establishment, remember how we talked about Justinian just codified what Constantine had started? So You're saying the, a lot of consonants. I know way. I am. With the rise of the church state establishment started by Constantine, the life of a Christian professional, that meant being a bishop or a priest or working in the church in some way, offered considerable potential for worldly preferment. That's a lot of big words. Could get you ahead in the world because now Christianity was the accepted religion and Christianity was the religion of the emperor. Oh, we and talked the church about that. And the, right. And that there wasn't a lot of sacrifice. So, there wasn't. Although there was a lot of inner ecclesiastical strife and str stress on st differences of opinions with the emperors, and that could make life precarious, the service in the church after Constantine could also offer stability, access to power, and a reasonable opportunity for wealth. So now, being in service in the church had prestige and power and wealth with it, so monasticism was a response that reflected spiritual concern about the church's success. The self-denial and privations of the monks, although a result now of self-imposed decisions rather than where martyrdom was imposed on them, were a way of recovering the ideals of martyrdom, giving yourself up for your commitment to Christ. So before, when you were persecuted, you could offer your life. But now that persecutions are not taking place and it's beneficial to be a part of the official church. There's no sacrifice. There's you no, can yeah. join the monastic way of life and remove yourself from life to prayer, scripture study, the things we're going to talk about and take on the ideals of martyrdom, the same ideals, ide martyrdom. martyrdom that existed for martyrs before. So, so kind of to kind of try to summarize what I think you're saying is the rise of monasticism of monkship. Monkship. I would rather say monkship. <laughs> I don't think I can, but go uh, ahead. 
is was a response to the fact that these early Christians were being martyred and they were being like Christ in their suffering. But once Christianity became an acceptable religion and not just acceptable, but also part of the upper class or the wealthy or the leaders or the empire, the emperor's religion, that it lost its sacrifice. It lost its connection to Christ because you weren't sacrificing. And I see what I hear you saying is people that were drawn to becoming a monk, it was more in line with living a sacrificial life rather than living a life of earthly wealth. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what I get is a yes. Yeah. I, th I thought you were going to go, yeah, but you know, well, I'm no, surprised I, th I got just a yes. Well, you, I think you came to it. It wasn't, there has always been an element of, and Jesus teaches about it, denying yourself and lifting up God, you know? Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whether you're a Christian that happens to be the emperor or someone that chooses to be a monk or anything in between, you still have to say, what does that mean for me? Right? Yeah, yeah. So people, so when it became popular, acceptable, cool, wealthy, prestigious to be a Christian, there were people who said, for me, that denying myself and taking up the cross means following the way of the monks, going mm -hmm. into a life of monasticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's. Did any, of them, did any of them have to wear a helmet at all times and not let anybody see their face? A helmet. A helmet. Like the Mandalorians. I have no idea. This is the way. Okay. Ready? Yeah. To be sure the monastic effort to seek out an existence of living martyrdom threatened to create a two-tiered picture of Christianity. Soon monks or the athletes of God, that's what <laughs> athletes of God, I'm doing my quote fingers. They had special uniforms. Seemed to be pursuing the true Christian faith, while ordinary people in ordinary human circumstances were consigned to a subordinate spiritual status. Yet even when the dangers posed by such a division, monks thinking of their spirituality more highly than they ought, ordinary people thinking too little of the spirituality within their daily life, the monastic response to the Constantinian situation proved effective. So there was still a very effective response in monasticism, even though it threatened to create this two-tiered idea that you're not really a Christian unless you remove yourself or I can't really be spiritual because I'm just an ordinary person, right? Okay. Right. In order to save critical Christian ideals, such as self-sacrifice and humility, as well as to promote Christian disciplines like prayer and study of the scriptures, the monks became the conscience of Christendom. The most important and most enduring of these inner motives was commitment to the scriptures. So Antony, the first of the monks, he's credited as like the first monk way back when, had gone into the desert after hearing Matthew 19.21 read during a servant's Sunday service, which says, if you want to be perfect, it doesn't really say if you want to be perfect, that's what this author says, but anyway, it says if you want to follow the commandment, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Anthony had only recently received a substantial inheritance of land from his parents. In these circumstances, the text so captured his attention that he went out and did exactly as the gospel enjoined. He sold 
and came and followed him. Okay. Mm -hmm. In addition, the monks returned repeatedly to injunctions and models of living, especially drawn from the New Testament. For instance, Paul's discussion of marriage caused them to choose uh, chastity to not be married. John the Baptist's life in the desert was a un- as an unmarried seeker for God loomed just as large. Um, but neither of those, the example of Paul or John the Baptist, was as large an example as Jesus, who forsook family and wealth to do his father's bidding and who sometimes went into the wilderness to pray. So they're all they're following those examples. The ideal was to seek God single mindedly. To pray without ceasing. Monks believe this effort would be aided by removing worldly distractions. The best way to seek God single-mindedly to pray without ceasing was to remove worldly distractions. The life of prayer in turn would transform them into a charitable and hospitable people. Now, I have thoughts. Is now the time? No, give it a little bit more. Immersion in Scripture remained a permanent characteristic. Okay, so... That characteristic of being immersed in scripture was permanent to monasticism. Even if there came periods in monastic history when the use of scripture grew perfunctory, preoccupation with the Bible was constant. So even if it became, what does that word perfunctory mean? I don't know. Just doing it automatically. It doesn't have meaning. Just mode. Yeah. Just, just on remote. This is the way we function. Even then, preoccupation with the Bible was still constant. Um, most early records of monasticism in Egypt contain the stipulation that would that novices, new members, memorize twenty psalms, two epistles. An epistle is a letter in the in the New Testament. So mm. twenty psalms, two entire books of the New Testament, or a biblical passage of comparable length as a requirement to enter the monastery. I'm having a hard time not speaking right now. So. Keep going until I can talk. I think now you can say something. I wanted to get those sections in there about Scripture and its role. So I didn't have to dive back into that when we come out of what you're talking about. There are monks today that still live the same way. In one respect or another, yes. Yes. And what I have a hard time with, well, probably a lot of people do. But what I, I see that... I'm not I don't I'm not anti monk, but I would say <laughs> I'm not anti monk. We should get some merch with that on. I'm that. not anti monk now. <laughs> don't get me wrong. The eyes of faith, the I like, podcast. Well, I like I'm monk. not anti monk. I like monks just like everybody else. <laughs> no, but I feel like like first of all, when you started reading that, like this this focus on Whatever you read toward the beginning of what this focus, can you find where you read it? Again? I don't know if I can. Single-mindedly pray without ceasing. That's one the example. Single-mindedness, removing distractions. Yeah, worldly distractions. I see that for a season. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to reach people for Christ, mm-hmm. how can you do that if you just? Oh, that's in? such a great question. Because as we continue to talk about the history, we'll see how they did. That's awesome setup. Like I recently watched a documentary of some guy that went and visited a monastery Mm -hmm. and the monk walked with them and talked with them, Mm -hmm. but he ain't going out getting people to come visit. He ain't like, let me talk to you about it. Watch what happens. But he's also like, um, watch what happens. I'm going to watch what happens. Okay. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. Anyway. Yeah. 
and many many people do. I tell you what, though, uh, I had a I had a <laughs> friend. His son, he read that same scripture. We were having a Sunday service, just like that fellow you talked about. Sunday service, we were having. We were all supposed to meet up at the uh, Old Charlie's after church, and and he didn't show up because that Matthew got in his head, and he he left town. He left town, sold all his stuff. Is that I'm following God and living, the, and then I don't know. I think he's homeless now. I don't. I don't sound right to me. <laughs> Are you fabricating here? I fabricated all of that. Listen, because you said this guy in like hey, 100 A.D. had a Sunday service. And it was not, maybe like, not, not yeah. You didn't say Sunday service. He was at a. I think he said. Yeah, I think that's it said not right. that during a Sunday service. Why is that not right? <laughs> Just. <laughs> A Sunday service in 100? It just seems odd to me. Why? Jesus resurrected on Sunday. They they had worship services on Sunday. Okay, maybe I just didn't realize that. I thought it was just a day, a Sabbath day. Hmm. But anyway. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, whatever. You're not listening to the podcast. What do you mean you're not listening? I thought you're, you're, that's what you were thinking about. No, me I wasn't then. thinking that. All right, that. so how did the monks engage with others? Okay, if we'll come to that isolated? answer. That's not just like, a okay, this is how they did it. We're going to get to the whole thing, okay? Um, I'm sorry, that sounded really... Whew. Even in periods of modern church history, when Protestants and Catholics had nothing good to say about each other, it is striking that Protestants continued to remember that they owed a great debt to the monastic houses that have preserved, copied, and studied the scriptures throughout the Middle Ages. Preserved, copied, and studied the scriptures throughout the Middle Ages. Monasticism, in brief, was built upon a foundation of scripture. Okay? Just check this. What? What? Do you have something else to say? I do. Go ahead. Then we'll come. We'll come back. They preserved and copied. Mm-hmm. Wes, who was it in Game of Thrones? In in Game of Thrones, when they, when, when the dude that, what were they called? There was a group in Game of Thrones that that's what they did. They preserved and copied. They were like the monks, so mm-hmm. they went and preserved and copied all these documents, and. And they uncovered some things that would prove the existence of something else in the past, and they were hiding it. And one of the young monks was like, "This can't be right." What were they called? The the I can't think of the name. Okay, we'll come to you. I'm moving on. In the breadth and depth of monastic influence in the church, the breadth and depth of the monastic influence in the church can be sketched quickly by observing the lineage of attitudes and actions. That have been approved by almost all Christians everywhere. So these are things that monks have done that have been approved by almost all Christians everywhere that are essential to the lineage and attitude of the church. Okay, if we read the scripture in our native languages, so if we're able to read the scripture in our native language, which we are, we benefit from a tradition of biblical translation inspired by the monk Jerome the first one to translate the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we sing together in the praises of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we follow where the hymn-writing monks Gregory and Bernard of Clairvaux led the way. If we pursue theology, we inevitably find ourselves indebted to the monks Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. 
Augustine was a monk. Augustine was a monk. If we pray for the success of Christian missions, we ask for blessing upon enterprises pioneered by the monks. Patrick, that one was going out and evangelizing. Boniface, Cyril, and his brother Methodius, and Raymond Lull. All of these, if you look at their dates, go from 390 to 1315. And if you were from areas where they were the evangelists, you would recognize those names. If we are interested in the past record of Christianity in English-speaking areas of the world, we cultivate a historical concern begun by a monk, the Venerable Bede. He wrote a famous history of the English-speaking church that is still, you know, like how we talked about Josephus in ancient times. Well, his name was Venerable Bede. Don't know why. Venerable Bede. Mm Mm-hmm. And he wrote a history of the English-speaking people, between, and he lived from 673 to 735, not there yet. If we glory in the goodness that God imparted to the created world, we follow where the friar Francis of Assisi blazed the trail. Okay, those were all monks. Monasticism was never a perfect answer to the question of how to live the Christian life. Its impact, nonetheless, cannot be underestimated, and that impact has been largely for the good. Now, we're going to spend a lot. What we're going to do now is we're going to talk about one particular monk that greatly shaped monasticism. Then we're going to talk about another particular monk. We probably won't get to him this episode, who became a pope and shaped monasticism. And then we're going to go in, go into much detail on monasticism's influence on the church of the middle ages. Okay. So, um, what I find interesting is the monks, if you, th- monasticism is active today. Absolutely. And started 100 with, with the faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes sense if you read the scriptures and and you know what the teachings of Jesus and the apostles are, it would make sense that there would be people who feel called and led to separate themselves from the world mm-hmm. and to focus in on that. And And I don't, I was kind of surprised in some of this literature to find this bias toward monasticism like like that was a bad thing to withdraw from the world and i understand that it would be a bad thing if you were asking everybody to do that i guess i've always looked at it as people following the calling that god has placed on them and those people have a role just like everybody does you know yeah but their role in this time period is essential it's in it's very evident and that's going to come about so it's almost certain benedict of nursia who gave the most it's almost certainly benedict who gave the most decisive and most beneficial shape to monasticism benedict and his famous rule now let me tell you what a rule is we're going to hear the word rule a lot when you talk about monks and monasticism we'll come to other monks as we move forward in history who have a rule okay And so I looked up the definition of just the word rule, and it applies here. And it says, one of a set of explicit or understood regulations or principles governing conduct within a particular activity or sphere. So when we're talking about a monastic rule, we're talking about a set of regulations or principles that govern the conduct of those monks of that monastery. So if you say, 
I am a monk, or if a person says, I am a Benedictine monk, that means they follow the rule of Benedict, the, his set of governing principles. I get it. That okay? makes sense. Another huge group that we come to later in history is the Franciscan monks. 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 Yeah. So, okay, so that's Which what, in middle school, I did have the Franciscan monks, which is something that okay. you don't. So, Benedict and his famous rule, it is to him that the church owes a series of invaluable gifts. And here's some of the things he did for regulating a zealous spirit that had often bordered on fanaticism. So before the time of Benedict and Benedict's dates, I don't have right here. We'll come 480 to 543. So same time period we're in, right? Yep. So before Benedict, there was a tendency that bordered on fanaticism. You know, I would imagine so. A kind of a... What I envision when I think about that is like John the Baptist out in the desert eating locusts and all this kind of stuff. So he regulated a zealous spirit. That spirit gave some, his rule gave some regulations around that. We owe him uh, thanks for curbing a practice of asceticism that easily slid over into Gnosticism, Docetism, or worse. Those were heresies. So it was easy to fall into heresies by removing yourself from the whole. And so his... Rules gave a boundary to that Mm. for preserving the centrality of scripture in a movement that made much of inner spiritual illumination. Okay, so you could come to focus on what was revealed to me in the spirit or how I felt or the way I was moved. And Benedict helped us to preserve the central centrality of scripture in that. That comparing that with and in the context of the Bible for recalling prayer to the heart of the Christian life. Prayer was an essential part of his rule for linking exalted religious experience like really lifted up emotional, spiritual experience with basic realities of work, study, eating and sleeping. Those things were part of the rule. It just wasn't about we're going to go over kind of what a day looked like in the life of a Benedictine monk. And there's still Benedictine monks today, but it includes work, study, eating and sleeping, not just prayer and scripture Mm -hmm. because it would be possible to just fast and to pray to the point where you are hallucinating yeah right because you don't have any food Mm -hmm. right you're not getting any rest and then we also have gratitude not least for providing an ideal of monastic life in which reformers have found inspiration and encouragement for 1500 years Pretty cool, huh? So let's talk a little bit about Benedict. Benedict, I've got a, keep going. Benedict I've got a couple was, of things I want to say. Was the son of a rich aristocratic Roman family. Well, do you want to say it now before we talk about him? No. Okay. No, I don't. He was I the, wanted to just say that it's called the Maesters. The what? <laughs> Game of Thrones. It was Maester, wasn't it? What? The Mock was a Maester. Was it Meisters? The Maesters. Meisters makes more sense. I think it was the Maesters. Okay. There we go. Benedict was the son of a rich aristocratic Roman family. When he was still a young man, his family sent him to Rome for schooling. Benedict had grown up in the country, and he was a committed Christian. In the years after the sack of Rome by the Vandals, Rome had become a more and more lawless town. There were frequent robberies and murders and all sorts of other evil deeds. The wickedness of Rome shocked Benedict. 
After only a short stay, he fled the city and began to live the life of a hermit in the Sabine Hills, which are hills outside of Rome. In the hills, he devoted himself to prayer and reading the Bible. Gradually, people heard about a quiet, simple, good man who lived alone in the hills not far from Rome. As his fame spread, others began to join him. After a while, Benedict found that the growing group of followers, he found that the growing group of followers, followers were distracting and annoying, but he realized that he could not just send them away. He also realized that a group of men living together would find life easier and safer than a hermit living alone would. Mm -hmm. Okay. Eventually, Benedict and his followers found a place to settle down on top of a mountain about halfway between Rome and Naples, a place called Mont Cassino. They tore down an old Roman temple to Apollo and used the stones to build a large building with rooms for all of them, the first Benedictine monastery. At the same time, Benedict decided to write out a set of rules which would govern the life of those who lived in the monastery. These rules were very detailed and gave directions about what to wear, monks should, what they should eat, and how they should organize all the hours of the day. The rules were summed up in three vows which Benedictine asked each, Benedict asked each monk to take when he joined the community. These were the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Benedict wrote out his rules in 529 A.D., the same year in which Justinian published his Code of Laws. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? I wonder if they, if Justinian used Benedict's. No, Justinian, they weren't in the same place at all. And Benedict's in the hills in Italy. And Justinian is using existing Roman law in the Roman mm. Empire. Um. I've go ahead. The rule of Benedict played a decisive role in the history of monasticism and therefore in the history of Christianity because it combined the zeal of earlier monastic pioneers with a carefully balanced concern for stability. It's famous for codifying vows of obedience, stability, and continual com conversion that led on to the more general vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But it was equally noteworthy for its far-sighted concern for what it would take to keep individual monks and entire monastic communities on an even kill. Far-sighted concern for what it would take to keep it on an even kill. The rule is marked throughout by a concentration on the spiritual realities that monasteries existed to embody. At the foundation was commitment to the practice of prayer. Wherever we want to, whenever we want to ask some favor of a powerful man, we do it humbly and respectfully for fear of presumption. A life of prayer, however, was not to be artificially divorced from a life of service. It is doubtful that Benedict could have foreseen the myriad activities of practical godliness that later monks who followed his rule pursued, but aspects of the rule provided a basis for those later developments. So service was to be a part of it, too. The ordinarily daily round shaped by Benedict's rule varied by place, era, personality of the abbot, and many other factors. And, and So did they move around the different places? Well, they multiplied. So like... like I see what you're saying. Depending on... Uh, one monk the, might leave and start another Benedictine order somewhere else and a Benedictine order somewhere else. And, a Benedict and then it gets tied in with the church, too. And we'll see that when we get to a little bit the next person we're dealing with. Okay. So... But, um, but you were going to try to explain to me how they brought in people. Yeah, we're going to get there. It's the big story. That's the big story. 
we're going to get there right now. It will take okay. the rest of this episode, the next episode, and okay. some episodes after that to tell that big story of how. I see. I didn't get that impression when you said it earlier. Okay. I thought what I'm about to tell you. And I'm still waiting for you about to tell me. Yeah, I'm so, telling you. You, you know, well, we're, we're like. I'm sure. I'm sure one of the ways that he brought more people in, at least I know that he has for me, was the breakfast that he would serve the other monks. Oh, there we go. Yes, it's because, very good. And they said, what is that that you're having? There has to be some reason it's named that. Well, they said, well, it's eggs, Benedict. <laughs> oh, that is Along so with funny. an English muffin from that I pulled in from Northern Europe and <laughs> some Canadian bacon that's from a country that hasn't been discovered yet. And some hollandaise sauce, which who knows what that is? And that's from I'm Holland, calling right? it eggs, it's Benedict. Hollandaise sauce. Leave from... me alone, Benedict. I'm calling it eggs, Benedict. There you go. And then another monk overheard it, went and started another monastery, and they said, "What are you serving?" I think it's called eggs, Benedict, because he didn't realize he was talking to Benedict when he said it. Okay. No, I'm still not done. Still not done. Had a side of diced potatoes. Okay, so here's an example. This is, well, I'm not even, um, how am I going to say this? So, Benedictine monasteries existed then for thousands of years, a thousand years or long, 1500 years after this creation, all right? So, an example here is of a Benedictine monastery that we have a record of from 1083 okay so that's many years after where we are but it's the yeah. same rule and order okay so here's what uh, the daily round in the summer because it depended on the weather and what was going on agriculturally mm -hmm. looked like for the monks in at this one up at six for prayers in the church then a light breakfast then work or reading after nine o'clock, a series of masses and meetings were held in the monastic church. The afternoon saw an alternation of work and prayer with supper at six, followed by prayers and then an early bedtime. At midnight, the monks arose for prayer again, and so it went, praying and working, praying and working throughout the passing of the seasons and the rolling of the years. I, sign me up for a weekend of that. People do that. That's really interesting that you I know, say that. I know. I know they do. Because many people, like, you know, I don't know if it's a Benedictine monastery. It's probably not. I should have looked it up. But, you know, there's a monastery at Swanee. And oh, I didn't know several that. of my friends I know have gone down there. I have another friend. She goes to one in Kentucky on the regular. Like, she tries to go, I don't know if it's two or four times a year, for four to five days at a time. And you just participate in that rhythm. Yeah. And it's usually silence. Like, you're not... I guess it depends on what the rules of that monastery are, but you're not talking to other people. You're working and praying and worshiping and eating and sleeping and working and praying. And It did mention a light breakfast. A light breakfast. Eating and sleeping and working and praying. and Yeah. Yeah. Going on. And do you remember when you got um, your, your book? What's your book? Useless Information. Yeah. And you read about. It's over there. Yeah. Okay. About a monk, the youngest yeah. monk. I read about the youngest monk. No. What am I? You're telling me to keep. I don't remember. It was. You read. About monks and you said. Um, I can find it if you want me to. No, find no. It. I'm, I'm just going to. I'm going to. 
you said this was useless information. And I said, well, let's see what year it was. And then it was a, that it was about the names of those times of the day. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. I think it's in this book. I've picked up a book. <clears throat> I have a picture that I took. Yeah, here it is. So it has the. This is reading from Turning Points by Mark Knoll. It's that same schedule that I. Well, it's a detailed of that outline thing I just read. Okay. Midnight, matins in the church, about one hour, then back to bed. So matins was the name of the midnight. So it's just an hour. I can do it. Mass or prayer or whatever. 6 a.m., prime in the church, about half an hour. That was prayers. Okay. Breakfast, work, or reading. Uh, and then those were the only. Then there was another one, like 9 a.m., chapter mass in the church. 10 a.m., chapter meeting in the chapter house. 11 a.m., high mass in the church. 12 noon, dinner. Then siesta. So you got a nap. 2 p.m., nones in the church, about half an hour. That was the 2 p.m. prayer. Work. 4 p.m., Vespers in the church, about half an hour, work. 6 p.m., Supper. 7 p.m., Compline, the evening prayer in the church, about half an hour. Then to bed, late in summer, then in winter. Later in summer, so then in winter. So bed could be 7 p.m. Yeah, later in, well, no, it was about half an hour prayer, so 7.30 or 8. And so later in the summer, than in the winter. You're getting an eight-hour night's rest. With a break, well, the break in the middle. With the break in the middle. You get four, four hours, hours, go pray, and, and then, then four, four or five hours. Yeah. And the work can't be a, uh, that hard. Oh, well, we're going to learn about that, too. Yeah. It uh, is hard. Well, then I'm not in. <laughs> anyway, so that's monasticism, and that's Benedict, and that's probably all we should do now. So let me just say again, we're putting in the pieces. I'm getting excited about where we're going. I'm I, I'm I'm going to say this. Wes Sketch knows this. A lot of people close to me know this. My favorite breakfast food is Eggs Benedict. So I'm just it just is, and it just happens to be what we're talking about. I was making that joke, but I'm like, I'm going to find out why it's named that. That's what I was going to say. You because should. I wonder if some chef named Benedict invented it. Or yeah, probably not Benedict. Maybe I should just months. look right now. But um, yeah, I can make it. I make it pretty good. I make it pretty good. You have to poach an egg. Not many people know how to poach an egg. Oh, so give us the tip on that. Well, it's basically you boil it. That's with water, doesn't it? Yeah, you boil the you you put you get some hot water and you cook the egg in the water, and then you just scoop it out. How did eggs Benedict get its name? I got it right here. Food, same thing you got. Oh, that says it was invented at Delmonico's restaurant. Okay. But that is not what this says. See, there's your sources. All right. Scroll down. What it what says does people it, also no, ask. No, read what it says up on the screen, Frank. It is said that Chef Charles Ranhofer came up with the combination in the 1860s when Mrs. Legrand Benedict, one of his regular diners, grew tired of the menu and wanted something new. This recipe, which he dubbed Eggs a la Benedict, was published in his cookbook in 1894. In 2005, food historian Maria Gunderson created Eggs Benedict the 16th in honor of Pope Benedict the The Sixth, sixth. who was born in Germany. This variation uses traditional German ingredients with the English muffin replaced by rye bread and bacon is replaced with either sausage or sauerbraten. Hmm. So it doesn't have, so I'm going with the one you read. 
Is Eggs Benedict named after Benedict Arnold? Though one might guess that the dish was named hey, for was Benedict Arnold, the most famous traitor of the American Revolution, it was not, nor it was named after Pope Benedict, leader of the Catholic Church from 1724 to 1730, or any of the 15 other popes who took the name Benedict. That's interesting, because why do you think they took the name Benedict? From this guy. Yeah. Um, the origins of Egg Benedict are a gilded age mystery. Mm. That's Demonico's legend. Here's one that it's uh, into the... Waldorf Hotel in New York in 1894. Eggs Benedict is a traditional American breakfast and brunch recipe that originated in New York City. It consists of English muffin cut in half, toasted, and topped with Canadian bacon, poached eggs, and classic French hollandaise sauce. Down here in the South, we have a country Benedict. It's got two cat head biscuits, (laughs) a fried egg, some bacon on top, and we slap some gravy on that mug. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That is a country eggs Benedict. We call that an eggs Buford. Hollandaise sauce is a rich buttery sauce, freshened with the, the lightest touch thing. of lemon. Despite having Holland in its name, it's generally agreed among chefs that Hollandaise sauce was first born in France and was originally known as sauce exigne, named after a small town in Normandy famous for its butter and cream. Okay, so. <laughs> Where are we, Frank? What's happening next? I just enjoy reading all these different eggs benedict i want some eggs benedict um now come on down only four dollars and 29 cents with a side of fruit <laughs> we got blueberries and strawberries okay, okay. we'll get you some cantaloupe if you want it <laughs> uh yeah 57 saint benedict um and monasticism or monkship or monkship. I think the name of this episode is Monkship. <laughs> but All right. anyway. Well, we'll see on... Uh, did, so did you learn something about monkship? I sure monkship? did. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go sign up for um, being a monk for a weekend. And we'll... Uh, I'm going to download the app for that. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Bye. See ya. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcast. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link in our bio at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com. Thanks for listening.